family because of the family that was sitting next to them. It, it turned out that this mom, and it seemed like it was a friend of hers, and this mom brought her like three-year-old, four-year-old little girl to this movie. And anytime the orcs appeared on the screen, the little girl would shriek, she'd cry, and she'd say, Mommy, I don't like it. Mommy, I'm scared. Mommy, I want to go home. And the mom would just say, shh, be quiet. It made her sit through the entire movie. Now, when my friends told me that story, I started doing what you're probably doing right now. I started silently judging this mom, trying to figure out who in the world would take their little three-year-old girl to a PG-13 movie. And maybe she just didn't know what it was about. But when the little girl starts crying, shrieking, saying she's scared, just sits there and goes, hush, you're bothering people. It's kind of like the dad who gives a rated M video game like Resident Evil or Grand Theft Auto to one of their kids for, you know, like their five-year-old. Hey, Merry Christmas. Enjoy this game that shoots and kills and all this murder and stuff. You just sit there and going, what are they thinking? And yet we have no issues plastering our children's nurseries with Noah's Ark. Because if you think about it, Noah's Ark is not a family-friendly movie. In fact, if Noah's Ark was made into a movie, which it was three years ago, it would be PG-13 or worse, which it was. This is a story about the mass killing of humanity, save eight people. This is a horrific story. It's, it is awful. There, there are people that, that they grow up in the church and they start looking at their parents' Christian faith and decide, nah, this isn't for me. And when they leave the Christian faith, some of them will cite Noah's Ark as one of the reasons because they just couldn't follow a God that would wipe off humanity. In fact, three years ago when the Noah's Ark movie was coming out, Bill Maher, uh, he's a TV show host, uh, he was talking about the movie and I found a clip of it. So here's Bill. But the thing that's really disturbing about Noah isn't the silly. It's that it's immoral. It's about a psychotic mass murderer who gets away with it and his name is God. Genesis says God was so angry with himself for screwing up when he made mankind so flawed, that he sent the flood to kill everyone, everyone, men, women, children, babies. What kind of tyrant punishes everyone just to get back at the few he's mad at? I mean, besides Chris Christie. You know, conservatives are always going on about how Americans are losing their values and their morality. Well, maybe it's because you worship a guy who drowns babies. Kind of uncomfortable, isn't it? I hope today you don't become cynical like Bill. That you don't walk out of here saying, I'm done with the Christian faith. Because how could we believe in a God that would just wipe off humanity? Actually, what I hope happens today is that you'll actually see that in this horrific story, the incredible love of God. Because right inside of this, believe it or not, is Jesus and the gospel. And I actually think that rather than us walking away going, who could worship this God? We'd actually walk out saying, I have to worship this God. And so, Father, I just come before you asking for your help. That you would lead each and every one of us to a place where we understand the story more. 
that, that we understand, that we don't just see the surface story and, and walk out fearing you, thinking you're some tyrant. Instead, we actually can look at it and we can see your incredible love. That's why I ask, Father, through your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to each and every person that is here today. They're each at a different place in their spiritual journey. And that's why I need you to talk to each of them, to where they're at, to help them go that next step in their walk with you so that they can see Jesus at the center of their life and follow him. So, Father, speak through me, speak through your word, and do in each of us what you need to do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, if you don't have your Bible open yet, uh, we're going to Genesis 6. Uh, If you have a smartphone, uh, I encourage you to download a Bible app to it. If you uh, don't have a paper copy, I'd encourage you after our service, just walk back by the Give and Grow table and pick up a a Bible. And if you don't own one, please take that, make that yours. That would be our gift to you. We would love for you to be in the Bible every single day. All right, since this is Noah's story, we're going to pick it up in verse 9 where we meet Noah. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. So behold, I will destroy them with the earth. What a start to Noah's story. I I mean, it sounds like Noah's actually got a pretty good life. At this point, he's like 600 years old, uh, or maybe 500 years old. No, yeah, he's about 600 years old. He's married, and he's got three kids. And it doesn't, it sounds like they're still little, but they're not. These are full-grown guys. I think they're each about 100 years old by this point. They've each got their own wives. He's got a happy life, but God's not happy. And God suddenly speaks up and says, hey, Noah, have you noticed? Earth is corrupt, and I'm going to do something about it. This is the part where atheists really get bothered. This is the part where non-Jesus followers say, yeah, I could not follow the, Bible, the God of the Bible. Because, I mean, look, he's saying, I'm going to destroy all of humanity. What kind of a God is this? Well, I've got four responses. First, God does not just go around killing people. All right, if you've been tracking with us in this His Story series— We started in Genesis 1, and then we saw in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve did the one thing that God said not to do. They sinned. They ate of the forbidden fruit. And what was the penalty for eating the forbidden fruit? Death. But instead of making them pay the penalty immediately, God showed mercy. He allowed the punishment to be transferred onto an animal that was killed in their place. And its skin then became their clothing. So God didn't kill them. And then last week, we looked at the story of Cain and Abel. We saw Cain kill his brother Abel. But rather than make Cain pay eye for eye and tooth for tooth, God showed mercy again. He didn't kill Cain. In fact, he marked Cain so that no one else would kill Cain. That's how much mercy God showed to this guy. So God does not just go around killing people. I want you to notice, though, too, up in uh, verse 6, Verse 6 says, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
So here are these evil people, and yet God is just so grieved because he put his image in them. They're supposed to be living like little Jesuses. They're supposed to be loving the way Jesus would, when he came to earth, the way he would love. They're supposed to be living the way Jesus would have. They're supposed to be in this pure relationship with God. But instead, through Adam's sin, they're going around living the opposite. They are now anti-God. And God is heartbroken because he loves humans. He's passionate for his name. He put his name in them, and they have just utterly destroyed it. And so God says, I got to do something. And that's the third thing, is that if anyone has the right to kill humans, it's God. Because you see, God put his image in mankind. And so when he puts his image in them, it's basically his brand. That's like his identification. My daughter, Megan, a lot of you know her. Uh, she's, you know, really quiet, sweet. She's babysat some of your kids. She's, you know, I think down in the preschool right now. But what you might not know about her is she's a very talented artist. Now, she would be embarrassed to know I'm telling you this about her. But she's very, very good. And I'm not just saying that because I'm her dad. I'm actually kind of picky when it comes to art. And she does some really good stuff. But her creations, you know, she can sign her name to them. And if she wants, she could hang it up on the wall. If she wants, she can stick it back in a closet. If she wants, she could go and destroy them. Now, that would be a shame because they're very, very good. But as the creator, she has that right. But if I were to burst into her bedroom, find her stash of artwork, and start throwing it on the fire, no, I don't have that right. That's her creation. This is why it's wrong for one human to go and kill another human. But for God, his image is on them. He doesn't enjoy it. He doesn't like it. But if he needs to do it, he does it because that's his right. But then the last thing we have to realize, that the punishment for sin is death. But back there in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, when Adam ate of the forbidden fruit, it wasn't just, oh, I broke the law of God kind of bad. It was getting worse. It went to the Cain-killing-Abel kind of bad. But it doesn't even stop there. It goes so far as to, to the point of every single evil thought we have is evil kind of bad. It's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And the penalty for sin is death. God has shown mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon people. But it's reaching a point where he's like, I've got to do something. And that's when he decides... I'm going to wipe off man. He doesn't find joy in it. He's heartbroken over it. He loves humans. He's like, they're not anything like what I intended. But God sees Noah. God has kept Noah. and says, Noah, with you, I'm going to start over. It, it, it's kind of like when your computer's acting up. You don't know what to do. You just unplug it and you plug it back in. You know, it's, it's a reboot. That's what God's doing here. Saying, I'm going to reboot the whole thing, and I'm going to start over with Noah and his kids. So, I, most of you are probably familiar with this story. In fact, if you asked most Americans, what are the three most famous stories of the Bible? This is probably one of the ones that gets mentioned. 
And so I don't want to take a ton of time walking through the story because I ultimately want to get us to seeing Jesus, all right? So God says to Noah, hey, I'm going to wipe off the face of the earth and I'm going to do it through a flood. So Noah, to save you and a few of the animals, I need you to build a boat. Now, if you start diving into it, you start seeing how big it's supposed to be. And in the English Standard Version, it uses the word cubit. I went and studied this week. I saw that different countries and regions had different lengths of cubits. And so we don't know exactly how big the ark was. And now, the nerd in me started to, you know, try and figure out exactly how big this thing was. And I suddenly realized that would start bogging us down in a bunch of details. It's not, worth, it's not like it's not worth studying. No, by all means, go figure it out. Some people argue that there's this, no way this boat was big enough for all of the animals. I actually found some sites that talked about it, and I thought, you know what? I think there actually was room for all of these animals. We're also not going to take a bunch of time to try and figure out, did the animals sleep while they were on the ark? Uh, or if they weren't, like, who shoveled all the poop? Uh, I mean, like, how did this all work? We're, we're just not going to take our time on that. What we need to know is that Noah started building this ark. Some people say it took him 100 years because of Genesis 6-3. Some people think it took 120 years. Uh, most of the modern-day scholars that I saw this week that in the commentaries, they think it was somewhere around 40 to 70 years, some, somewhere in that range. Let's just say 50. Could you imagine building a boat for 50 years? I mean, that's perseverance. That is obedience. Because he had no modern machinery. He couldn't fire up the chainsaw. He couldn't, you know, run it through the mill. I know he had to go and cut down these trees himself, turn them into planks, and somehow put this together the way God has told him to. Now, he probably had his sons helping. Maybe he hired help. Still, even if it was only 40 years, could you imagine? But now imagine what his neighbors are thinking. I mean, just imagine if one of your neighbors started building some huge monstrosity in their backyard. You'd become curious. So you'd start asking, what are you building? Can you imagine Noah? He's like, um, building a boat. And they're probably looking around going, um, there's not exactly any water around. Why are you building a boat? Because God told me. And you've got this group of people who are evil in every thought that they have. So they probably just start laughing, start mocking him. It wasn't that they were atheists. They probably believed there was a God. They had just become so anti-God that they didn't care any longer. And so now God tells you to build a boat? That is hilarious. So maybe for 40, 50, 60 years, Noah had to put up with constant mocking as he's trying to build this thing in obedience of God. And it's taking forever. But then it finally happens. The rains start to fall. The scripture talks about the fountains bursting forth. And there were these people Eating, drinking, getting married. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 24. They're just carrying on with life. And the whole time, here's this object declaring their destruction. And they just laugh at it until the water starts to come. And God shuts Noah and the animals up inside the ark, and they have to ride it out. Now, many of us, we, we think that this happened for 40 days and 40 nights. Actually, that's just how long it rained. Could you imagine 40 days of rain? I mean, like, I start slipping into a seasonal depression after a week of constant rain. That's why I don't live in Seattle. You know, like, 40 days, and you're just cooped up inside this thing. 
And then it says that the waters were over the earth for 150 days. Can you imagine? But yet they're not even done then. The waters begin to recede. And when you look at when it says how old Noah was when this whole thing started and how old Noah was at the end, you find out it was 375 days that they were inside the ark. Like, I start going stir-crazy after a three-hour car trip with a toddler. I couldn't imagine 375 days. That's one year and 10 days. That's insane. But finally, the boat lands on top of Mount Ararat, which is in modern-day Turkey. It comes to rest. The land dries enough. They're able to open it up and walk out upon dry land. And it is when they emerge out that I so clearly see Jesus. So I want you to skip over to chapter 8. We're going to head over to verse uh, 18. Chapter 8, verse 18. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. And then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. It's interesting, isn't it? After 375 days inside this boat, the first thing that Noah does is to gather a bunch of rocks, somehow find some wood, and kill an animal. One of these animals that he just transported for 375 days with him. Most of the animals, they were just in pairs, male and female. But certain clean animals, God brought seven. And it was those that he sacrificed upon this altar. Why in the world is the first thing that he does a sacrifice? Well, I think it was first worship. It was praise to God. In a sense, thanking him. And in a sense saying, okay, I could like keep these animals alive so that we could repopulate this earth a little faster. I I could kill some of these animals and use it for food. Or I could sacrifice it and burn it to you. To say, God, you brought me this far. I trust you. But also a lot of sacrifices back in the Old Testament were because of sin. And and that might make you pause and say, well, wait a second. Noah's righteous. Well, you're right. Compared to everyone else, he was quite righteous. But if you continue on with the story, you kind of see Noah do some non-righteous things. He gets incredibly drunk at the end of the story. Ends up laying naked. It's kind of shameful. It's not exactly the thing that a righteous person does. His son, Ham, discovers him, thinks it's hilarious, goes and tells his brothers, like shames his own father, in a sense. That's not something a righteous person does. That, that's why I think there in verse 21, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart. I think that word for, some other translations, they'll say even though. You could read it that even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In other words, God's saying, I know it's going to happen. Yeah, I did a reboot, but it's not going to completely cure it. I'm starting over with Noah and his family, but it's going to happen again. 
Humans will become evil because of sin. It's already there. It's who they are. It's kind of what is echoed in Romans 3. Romans 3 tells us that none have sinned. No, I mean, sorry, that all have sinned, that none seek God. No one is righteous. Romans 3.23 tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of God's standard. It's just who we are. And so that's why I think Noah, it's worship, but it's also sacrifice, a payment for his sins. But then God says something incredibly interesting. Notice it there. It's in chapter 9 in verse 8. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The word in there that God uses, covenant. A covenant is a solemn vow, like this agreement between two people or two parties. If you are married, you, made, you entered into a marriage covenant when you stood before a pastor or a priest or a judge and exchanged these vows together. You're in a marriage covenant. But in a covenant, usually both parties have a part to play. And so I want you to notice, God's making this covenant. So what is God's part of this covenant? Anyone? Say it out. Yes. God says, I will never destroy all flesh again. So that's his end of the agreement. He will uphold his covenant. I'm not going to wipe everyone out with a flood again. But what is it that Noah and his sons are supposed to do? Yeah, that one's a little harder to find because it's nothing. Now, if you wanted to, you could go back in the verses right before this. In verse 1 and verse 7, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. But that he says to them before he says, I'm establishing this covenant. In other words, this is a one-sided covenant. God is going to do it all. Noah and his sons don't really have to do anything. And that is just like the gospel. The gospel is a one-sided covenant. If you look at the gospel covenant as described in Ephesians chapter 2, you see God saying, I will save you. I will do this. It's not by work so that no one can boast. It's nothing that you can do. It's one-sided. It's God saying, I will redeem you. I will change you. I will bring you from spiritual death into spiritual life. I will take you from being separated from me to now being my son or daughter. I will, I will take you from being you know, uh, 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 separated from me to now being fully connected. It's, it's a radical change. And it's one-sided. The only thing that you do, and I put that in quotes, is accept it. To believe it. It's just there. And so you just say yes. And you follow it. And you start making that your identity. That's all that Noah and his sons had to do. Was just accept it. God says he's never going to do it again. He'll hold to his promise. And that's how they hold the covenant. That's where I see Jesus. But I not only see Jesus in the covenant. I also see Jesus in the sign 
of the covenant. We stopped at verse 11. Let's keep going. Chapter 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, whenever I walk into a little kid's nursery and there is, you know, Noah's Ark on the wall, you know, there's little cartoon Noah and he's sitting next to the smiling giraffe and, you know, they're floating happily on the water and there's the sun smiling. Right behind it is like a little cloud and a little rainbow. We, we all know the story. It, it, it's a rainbow. And sometimes even when we're out and we see a rainbow in the sky, we'll say, oh, that's God's sign. That's his covenant. that He's never going to flood the whole earth again. Well, I tend to study from the English Standard Version, uh, mostly because it tends to be a more word-for-word type of translation. And no, by the way, no translation can truly be word-for-word. If, if it was, you, we wouldn't understand it, right? So they have to adjust it somewhat. But their method of translation is to attempt to get as close to the Greek as, as, or, or Hebrew in this case as they think possible, all right? Other translations are a little more thought-for-thought. All right? They want you to understand the concept. So the, what was the thought that was being communicated to the people, and how do we help that thought be communicated today? Okay? I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. There's a big debate over it. But because of the, the bias, I guess, of the English Standard Version of trying to be word for word, it stood out to me that in verse 13, it said bow. Like, I, I was expecting the word rainbow. Why does it just say bow? So I headed over to uh, Bible.com, I'm sorry, Bible.org into their Lumina study environment. I highly recommend it. I use it almost every week in my sermon prep. And they have some language tools in there. I'm not, you know, versed in Hebrew and Greek. And so I start using some of their tools and I, I discover where the word bow is. And so I hover over it and the definition comes up hovering down at the bottom right of my screen. And it stands for a warrior's bow. So I asked my son, Salem, if I could borrow his bow. He asked for one for a Christmas or birthday a couple years ago. And so here we've got a bow. And if you were to stick an arrow in it and pull it back, where's the curve? Yeah, it's, it's out here. So if you look at a rainbow and you realize that the word in the Hebrew is a warrior's bow, which way is the bow aimed? Up. It's aimed up like this. Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, he said this about Genesis 9, about the rainbow. You see, it is an unbroken bow. He did not snap it across his knee. It is still a bow. Vengeance is there. Justice is there. But which way is it pointed? It is turned upward, not to shoot arrows down on us, but for us. It's like God, when he's establishing the covenant, is saying, I am not going to kill off humans again for their evil. That there will come a day where instead of making them pay for their sin, I will take the arrow. I will be pierced. I will be killed. I will take the punishment in their place. This is the gospel. This is Jesus. He took the arrow. Instead of it being lodged at you and you dying for the payment of your sin, he took the punishment through the cross. Instead of you being pierced by an arrow, he was pierced with nails. Instead of you having to be washed away in a flood, he allows you to be washed in his grace so that you can be utterly changed. So that means if you're here today 
and you are not a follower of Jesus, first I want to say, I am glad you're here. We, we actually started Riverwood Church for you. And that's why I want to invite you to become a follower of Jesus. Because hidden right inside of this horrific, horrible story about the killing of thousands upon thousands of people is the story of hope. It's a story of God's love. That instead of making you pay for your sin, Jesus took it for you so that you could be freed. Sin would no longer have to be your master. You wouldn't have to give in to the evil thoughts. You wouldn't have to give in to the addiction. You wouldn't have to give in to the temptation. Instead, you could be free because Jesus took it for you. So if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and suddenly you're starting to realize it's true, there really was a man named Jesus who really was the Son of God who came down to earth and died on the cross in my place. And now he invites you to give your life to him. Most people, when they realize this, and they're ready to accept it, to believe it, they usually express it in prayer. In just a little bit, I'm going to pray. And if you want, you can ignore me and you can just talk to God yourself. And you can just express to him something like this. God, I realize that you made me in your image, but because of sin, that image has been distorted. It's been destroyed. But yet, rather than make me pay the penalty for my sin, which was death, you, Jesus, went and took it for me. And you now invite me to follow you. So Jesus, because you gave your life for me, I now give my life to follow you the rest of my days. As I look out on my church family, I see a lot of people who already have made a decision to follow Jesus. I know you long to live a Jesus-centered life. And so what this story should do for us just cause us to worship because Jesus took the arrow. Because if we're honest, we can look at our lives and we can see the evil. We see that we're like Noah, that yes, there's this part of us that's righteous and yet we have moments like Noah did at the end of the story. And yet that is covered too. You are forgiven. And that should lead us just to exalt God, to worship him. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're just going to worship. We're going to worship through song. You can sit there and worship in prayer. We're going to open up the communion tables and you can worship through taking of the elements. But we are basically coming to God right now to say thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the arrow dying my death, and giving me your life. I just ask that when you come to the table, that when you take that bread, you realize that is Jesus' body, which was broken for you. When you take and eat, you're doing that in remembrance of him. When you pick up that cup and you drink of the juice, that's his blood, which establishes a new covenant with you. So when you take and drink, you do that in remembrance of him. And so I'm just going to ask that if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you, you're just not quite ready for this, you've still got questions, then I'm just going to politely ask that you not go to the tables. If you're a follower of Jesus here, and, and you're, you're sensing like, okay, I got to go and do this out of duty, don't. I want you to come to this table because of what Jesus has done. And so let's just go now and worship him. Father, we just uh, say thank you. We need you. We are a little too prone to be like the people of Noah's day. Uh, there is sin that is creeping and lurking and wanting to, uh, to capture us. 
But yet, Jesus, you died on the cross, and so that sin has no mastery over us. We are free from it. That's why I pray right now for anyone who is not a follower of you yet, that they would simply express this desire to make you the center of their life, to say thank you, Jesus, for taking the arrow, for going to the cross, for dying their death so that they could now have your life. pray for any of my brothers and sisters in Christ that have been struggling whether it be with an addiction or a relationship issue, something going on at work or maybe there's just something going on internally I pray Father that today they would find freedom, that today would be a new day, a day where they realize that you love them, you have freed them and you've done everything for them that you have established this one-sided covenant and you will uphold your end so they can just come and fall at your feet and just accept your love, to accept your grace, to accept your mercy. We see that so much through the cross. That's why we take these communion elements. We, we sense it in your presence. So God, that's why we come to you now, just in prayer. We come to you in song because you are God over all things. And you had a right to kill us. And yet out of your extravagant love, You did the opposite. You took it for us. So God, we say thank you for the bow. Thank you for hanging it in the sky. Not simply as a reminder that you will never flood the earth again, but as a reminder that you will not rain arrows down upon us. Instead, you will take it. And you did it through the cross. That's why we come now and do all of this in remembrance of you.